There's something about work in our lifetimes here in this world that can be deeply disappointing, deeply frustrating, and leaving us with a need to know why we should even bother. Why go back? Why hit it again? Why should we keep going when it's just one blow after another, seemingly undoing everything we did the day before, the week before, the years before? Why keep working? What is our motivation for doing that? We began this uh, series last Sunday talking about the life of work from the point of view of God's wisdom. And uh, we need that wisdom because we need an ethic for work in our lives. It is one of the primary ways that we express the glory and greatness of God. And uh, so it is very important for us to receive this. I uh, saw a cartoon uh, on Monday in the paper. It's a man walking with a dog in a suit. The dog says, I went into the human world to find purpose in life, but this whole thing is just an elaborate game of fetch. (laughs) It it does feel like that. It feels kind of pointless. Go get the stick, bring it back. Go get it again, bring it back. Why? Why keep going with this? The minute you work on it, the minute you get it fixed, it comes unstuck and you have to fix it again. You get it cleaned up, it, you come back and it just, it's the same old mess. You get something built and forces want to tear it down. Why keep going? What is the reason for our motivation uh, to work? Why should we do that? Uh, what is the source of our motivation? We need wisdom on this. This is not just an emotional issue. This has to do with our purposes for living. It has to do with why we are here and why God has put us here, what he has called us to do. Let's remember our description of what wisdom is. Wisdom builds habits of mind. It builds what we call virtues, And those habits of mind, something like we talked about last week, prudence, looking ahead, making a habit of cultivating foresight and saying, you know, this is coming down the road. It's both a challenge and an opportunity. What can I do about that challenge right now to be prudent? Wisdom develops that habit, and wisdom comes from the habit of that that kind of virtue. Another uh, virtue that we'll talk about this morning is discernment. The ability to see the meaning of things that happen, the meaning of what people say and do, the ability to separate and and distinguish between things in life. We're going to talk about that more this morning. How do we separate out and distinguish the things that happen to us and why they happen? We need that intellectual Mental virtue of discernment, the ability to discriminate between things. Now, wisdom goes on from that, and wisdom moves on to look at our situation with the habits of virtue that God gives us. And when we do that, we say, you know, I have a role in this situation. 
I've got a job to do here. There's a specific role for me. In some situations, I am a son, and that is my role. In other situations, I am a father, and that is my role. But in all sorts of situations, whether I am a boss or an employee, whatever role I have, my role is telling me something about what I owe and what I need to do in that situation. So you see how wisdom works. It develops habits of mind that reach out into life and look ahead and look out and discriminate and discern, and we find our roles in particular situations, and then we say, based on the fact that this is my role, this is what I owe in this situation. So that's kind of how wisdom works. Let's apply that to the question of motivation. Since work seems like an elaborate game of fetch, what can wisdom tell us about why we should be motivated to work? What is the meaning of work and why is it important? What are our roles in work as God has laid it out? And what do we owe in work because of the roles that God has given to us? First thing we're going to look at this morning is this short proverb, chapter 16, verse 26, and we're going to see how this proverb actually reflects the whole of biblical teaching. Then we're going to look at some barriers to work, and we're going to look, take in some other proverbs that kind of flow out of Proverbs 16, 26, and then we're going to ask some evaluation questions of ourselves. So let's dive in this morning to Proverbs 16:26 and talk about the appetite. Why work? Proverbs 16:26 says, "A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on." Ultimately, what is the motivation to work? Why work? Why play the elaborate game of fetch? Because I need to eat, that's why. My appetite, my need for food urges me on. Don't stop, because you have needs. And the way you're going to meet those needs is through work. More than that, the people around you have needs. You have family, loved ones, children. You have people who are depending upon you They need to eat too. And they are looking to your work to provide for their needs. So their appetites are urging you on as well. This is pretty bottom line, gut level stuff. It's very basic. We work because we need to eat. You know how this plays out in the New Testament. In Ephesians, Paul says, uh, he who will not work will not eat. If you have been stealing, he says in Ephesians, stop stealing from others, but go to work. And and in that way, provide for yourself and the people around you. And when you do that, you will have something to share for those who have needs. So you become a provider instead of a taker, and this is the reason to work. Ultimately, bottom line, what motivates us to work and continue the elaborate game of fetch hunger. That's what it is. Now, you say, that's 
not very rewarding. I was hoping you would give Pastor uh, a more comprehensive answer to that question so that I could have some emotional fulfillment in my work. I was kind of looking for some inspiration here this morning. But what you're telling me is that I have to work because I need to eat. And I agree with that. That's all very basic. But is there more? Yes, there is more. There's a lot more. Sometimes you look at these Proverbs and you realize this is really just the foam on the waves. And underneath it is the whole of biblical truth surging and pounding and moving underneath the foam on the surface. So you've got this little truth here. You work because you need to eat. Your appetite drives you, works for you, and your mouth urges you on. Underneath that basic truth is the whole body of scriptural truth about why we are here and what we are doing in this world. I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Let's talk about the significance of work in God's design and plan. While you're turning there, I forgot to mention that you can text me questions about the sermon, and I'll reserve some time to answer those. You can also write them on a card. My number is on the back page of the bulletin under my name, and it will also come up on the last screen of the presentation this morning. Genesis chapter 2. This is obviously the creation story. This is where the Lord creates human beings and he puts them in the garden. I want you to see what it was that God had for us to do at the very beginning of our creation. Uh, Let's pick it up at verse 5 of Genesis chapter 2. Let's read a little bit. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. At that time, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath Of life, and the man became a living creature. Now let's get the picture here. There are plants, he created those on an earlier day, we learned from chapter one, but there's something that has not happened yet cultivation, agriculture, domestication. Plants of the field is how Hebrew refers to this. And so what, uh, what this is saying is there was no agriculture, there was no cultivation of the land, there was no man yet to work the ground. Fairly basic thing. And so, verse 8, the Lord made the man and he also planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now watch what God does. God does the first bit of cultivation, the first agriculture in this garden where he has made the man and uh, he places him there. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up 
every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, what has happened here? The Lord has begun the process of working the ground. And he started to cultivate these trees, and he's cultivated them in two ways. Visually, he's made this garden a beautiful place. He's formed it to be a feast for the eyes, to where you look at it and you say, oh, this is really wonderful. It ministers to me just being in this place. When we were on vacation last month, one of the places we went was called the Oregon Gardens. Big, vast place that has been cultivated with all different kinds of gardens, all different kinds of things. It's a wonderful place to be. You go into this atmosphere and it's cultivated visually so that when you look at it, you say, wow, that is beautiful. That ministers to me. That lifts me up. So he cultivated it visually and he made it a literal feast for the stomach. He cultivated trees that were good for food. So he made a beautiful place and he made a productive, fruitful place with his agriculture. He also did a bunch of other things. Look at verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the, the name of the third river is the Tigris. You may recognize that one. It flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is another one you may recognize, the Euphrates. Pastor, why are you reading us all of this geography? Because we need to get a sense of where this garden was. It was at the source of four rivers. And those rivers went out into the rest of the world. So basically, God is starting a garden in one location where you will never have to hunt or dig for water. There's water all over the place. It's right there. And what he's saying to the man is, garden the rest of it. Go out into the world, fill it, subdue it, make these gardens, travel along these rivers and go out and capture all of that good stuff that I've put out there Get all of that wealth, put it to work, subdue the creation, do what I do. Be a farmer and an entrepreneur, a creator. Do all of that stuff. Get out there and work. You know what this is saying? It actually says it in so many words in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden... Why? To work it and keep it. You know what this means? We were designed, 
We were made to feed ourselves. We were made to work this world and create an abundance from that. We were made to apply our intelligence, our dreams, our sense of possibility, our understanding of what opportunities are in front of us. We were to take all of that, apply sweat to it, and make an abundance out of it. Let me put it in a different way. We were not designed to lay back in the garden, open our mouths, let go, and let God. (laughs) That's not what this was. We were designed and placed in a system of life so that we could actually make that system produce more than even what God did. I don't know about you, but I think that's an astounding thought. This means that when we work, when we create, when we are productive, when we are fruitful, we are doing the most basic thing we are called to do. We are glorifying God. We are reflecting His character back to Him. Okay, so that's the garden. But as you know, other stuff happens. There is only one resource that they are not permitted to eat, and that is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know this story. This, by the way, is basically saying, the Lord is saying to the man, you know me. If you know me, you know everything you need to know about good and evil. Because I give it to you. I create good. I provide it. You know me. You don't need to know more than that. Well, they weren't happy with that, and they decided to eat of the fruit of the the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You know that when the man eats of that fruit, a series of curses come down, not just on human beings, but on literally the whole created order. The serpent who was the tempter in this, uh, in this sin is going to come under the judgment of God and he is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman whom he tempted. We call this the first gospel, the proto-evangelion is the technical term. This is the first time that God made the promise I will deal with this. And he he tells the serpent, plan on it. Your head is going to be crushed. And we know who does that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, he says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. What had happened up to that point in a a very normal, non-threatening, non-painful flow of life now happens in pain, suffering, and death. Verse 17, look at this closely. To Adam, to the man, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is what? 
is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You shall slave, sweat, work this ground. You will work harder, you will sweat more, the reward will be leaner, and you will die. This is the curse. It has thrown the entire created order into futility and death. That sounds more like our work week, doesn't it? Uh, that, that sounds a lot more... We don't really understand the Garden of Eden where you just do stuff and you're working and things are happening and you're in the zone and everything is flowing. That sounds a lot more like not work. That sounds like play. Interesting, Mark Twain said work and play are two words for the same thing done under very different circumstances. A lot of insight there. Because sometimes our work does get into the zone and it becomes a kind of play. The Garden of Eden was that zone. And that zone is gone. So the agriculture that he did do that was just flowing out and, and was, was moving out from the garden along these rivers and literally conquering all the land, that's all done. Because now in the fall, man is cursed, the ground is cursed, and now we eat by the sweat of our brow and we die. Now, going back to Proverbs 16.26... When Proverbs says the worker's appetite works for him, it is not just saying something psychological about how we are motivated to work. Solomon is saying something theological about the world. He is saying the problem is that we work in a fallen world. It does not cooperate with us. It continually throws up thorns and thistles in our way and we continually clear it. It's an elaborate game of fetch. And so Proverbs 24, uh, Proverbs 16 rather, 26, answers the question, how are we motivated to work? Appetite, need, you're driven to work you need to eat. Let me just make one more observation then we'll move on. The observation is this. If the creation of the world was about work and if the fall of human beings and the whole world into sin, if that was about work too, you know what this means? When Jesus comes and deals with the fall, when Jesus crushes the serpent's head, when he pays for our sins, when he rises again, 
and becomes the firstborn of a new creation, a new genesis, a new garden, a new heavens and a new earth. When he does all of that, he is speaking directly to our work lives. Your work is bound up with the gospel. Let me put it a slightly different way. When you go to work, Jesus is right there. He is working with you. And everything that you do is for his glory because he is the new creation king. He is the firstborn over that new creation. And in your work, you are glorifying him, proclaiming his name, and your heart is changing toward him, toward the people around you. The gospel is about your work. Historical observation here, when the reformers, Martin Luther and many others, recaptured the gospel, and when they said, we are saved by faith, not by the church, not by religious duty. We are not saved by the Pope. We are not saved by confessing to priests. We only have one priest. It is Jesus Christ, the firstborn over the new creation. We are saved by faith in him. When they did that, they discovered something about work. They discovered that the real work, the holy work, the God-glorifying, worshiping work is not just in the church. It's everywhere. Every profession, every kind of work, whether it seems menial or it is white-collar brainiac work, whether it is low in status or high in status, all the work is high in status with God because it all glorifies Him. And the Protestant reformers began preaching this. You are not alienated from God because you're outside the church. When you go out of the four walls of the church, you are entering into the work of the kingdom and you're carrying that work everywhere you go. It's an amazing new thing that hit in the 1500s. So all that to say, when we talk about Proverbs 16.26, your appetite drives you to work We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the whole body of biblical truth about salvation. And this verse is just the foam on the waves. Let's talk now about some barriers to this. When we say something like, we work because we need to eat, maybe we feel a disconnect there. I actually don't work because I need to eat. I'm pretty far removed from needing to eat. It's not, like, um, it's not like I have to go out and slaughter the animal in order to eat that evening. That's, that's not how this works. If I need to eat, I just go to the uh, go to Carl's Jr. or whatever, and I, I just buy the thing and I eat it. Somebody else does all the work, 
that enables me to eat. Now, I, I do work in order to get the money to pay for the food so that I can eat, but we're at, a, at many, many removes from that, that kind of primal drive. Where's the next meal coming from that I'm going to eat? In this, we are absolutely unique in world history. Within living memory, people didn't know in this country where the next meal was coming from. And so a verse like this in 1936 would have had a very different meaning then than for us. Everybody's working with motivation, and that motivation is gut level. They're working because they don't know where that next meal is coming from, and they're scratching around to make work in order to eat. Well, we're very far from that. We have what we call cravings, desires. And if you ask people in any depth, what are you really working for? They're not going to say, I'm working so that I can eat. They're going to say, well, I got plans, stuff I want to do. I want to buy a house uh, over here. I want to build this business. I want to make sure that I have enough in my retirement investment portfolios. I want to accomplish this. Maybe it's a lot simpler than all of that. It's all about flat screen TVs. I want one and and I'm working so that I can get that. Or the next generation of, uh, of tech that comes out, I'm working for that. You see what we've got here? Cravings. And work for us has become a way of satisfying cravings. We say, I need, when what we need, is, what we mean is, I want. This is a problem for us. Because it means we don't understand what work is for. And if we don't understand what work is for, that means there's something about the gospel that we're missing. God did not create the Garden of Eden to satisfy our cravings. He created the Garden of Eden and he put us in there and he sent his son to die, to pay for our sins, to build a new kingdom and a new creation, not to satisfy our cravings, but to build and magnify his glory. That's why he did it. That's what our work is about. And that's what the gospel is about. Let's look at a couple of places where Proverbs comments on this. If you're at Proverbs 26, turn the page back uh, a ways, maybe a couple of pages to chapter 13. Proverbs 13, 4. Let's look at something it says about uh, the guy we met last week. The sluggard that comical, ugly character in Proverbs. Here he is again in Proverbs 13, 4, Solomon, by the Holy Spirit, says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly 
supplied. Big contrast there. You got the soul of the sluggard who is the guy who looks at his field at that incredible asset, that opportunity that is calling out to be cultivated, something to be made of that. He looks at that and he says, uh, wow, I am, I am beat. Do that tomorrow. And tomorrow I'll just wake up and I'll, I'll take a look at it, but hey, we got plenty of time to get to those weeds out there. This, we can get after that some other day. And the stone wall, that'll keep. We don't have to just rush out there and put those stones back and make sure that guy is repaired. We don't have to do that. That's our guy. That's the sluggard. Tomorrow. Today, I'm tired. A little rest, a little folding of the hands. It'll do a body good. The soul of that guy, that person, what is that? The soul is not just kind of the immaterial part of, of a person. In the Hebrew mind, the soul is the life. It's the whole package, body and soul, body and spirit, the, the material part that, uh, of our bodies and the immaterial part of our heart, emotions, our mind. The soul gathers all of that life together and that's the soul. So the soul of the sluggard, the fountainhead of everything that powers his or her life, craves. You say, craves what? I don't know. It doesn't seem to matter. If it's one thing today, it'll be another thing tomorrow. Because you can give him what he craves today. You can give her what she needs today. But tomorrow it'll change. You'll need something else tomorrow. The soul of the sluggard, the life force, the energy of this person craves. That's it. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Why? Well, because there's no work even for the basics. So how are you going to get the stuff you crave if you can't even supply the basics. Well, that's easy. Visa, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's how that works. Everybody's giving credit now. I mean, that's... Why not? Why not use it? I mean, everything can be done tomorrow, right? So the soul of the sluggard craves and puts it on plastic. Puts more on tomorrow and more and more and more. So we are a society of craving. Our souls are given over to craving. It's incredible how we can be a society this rich and this discontented. What do we get from this? Nothing. The soul of the diligent, now that's the contrast here. So the life energy, the physical, emotional, intellectual energy of the diligent is richly supplied. Passive. There's no active verb there. 
that means that the supply is coming from that person's diligence. So the field is out there. It's crying out to be cultivated. The guy says, today we're going to do this and tomorrow we'll do that and we're going to keep plowing and working and clearing and then this field is going to be ready and then we're going to charge in. We're going to start, we're going to start uh, uh, planting seed and then we're going to get ready to harvest and we're going we're to work this whole series of procedures throughout the whole year and that's what we're going to do. And it starts now, starts today with this task right in front of us. That's the, the soul of the diligent because the prudent guy is looking out ahead. He has that habit, that virtue. Now, what's interesting about this is that it doesn't say that the soul of the diligent is richly supplied by his diligence. It just says he's richly supplied. And it doesn't say anything about cravings. It doesn't say, for example, the soul of the diligent receives what it craves. There's something about the soul of the diligent that is discriminating between what is needed and what is wanted. And the soul of the diligent goes after what is needed, goes after it hard, works it hard, doesn't stop until the job is done. And then his soul is richly supplied. Richly means there are many wants in there that are supplied as well as his needs. But uh, there's nothing said here about cravings. What's going on here? The diligent person has the ability to discriminate, to discern between a need, excuse me, and a want. So there's something going on here There's some power or force that is supplying this diligent person, man or woman, with what they need and what they want. Their diligence is just one part of this. So turn, um, well, let me just pause here and, and talk about our society. If we are working to fulfill cravings, you know what we're doing? We are filling our soul with junk. We're doing it physically with the food that we eat. We're doing it emotionally with the entertainment we take in, all of which is emptying our pocketbooks, right? So we're filling our souls with the junk of this society, and we crave more, and we crave more and more. And so what do we get for all of that craving? Nothing. Not a thing. But the soul of the diligent is able to discern the difference between needs and wants. He has a habit. He has a virtue of discernment. And so the diligent person, she goes after what is needed that day, does it now, and that's the heart of her diligence. Um, Let's go to another verse here. Turn the page over to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 19. Here he is again, the sluggard. I want you to think about this in terms of what we just read in Genesis chapter 3. 
Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of what? Thorns. You think Solomon chooses that word idly? I don't. Solomon knows about that word. Solomon knows where that word shows up in the scriptures. It's in the curse. Basically what he's saying here in this first line is the way of the sluggard, the path he's walking through is like a big bramble, a big thicket of blackberry bushes. It's all thorns, it's overgrown, and you can't get through that. That's his way. That's the path that he has chosen. Why? Because he didn't spend time clearing it. Didn't, didn't invest in what he or she needed to do day by day, little by little, to keep the thing clear and the way ahead of him free. So what's the contrast here? The way of the sluggard is the way of the curse. The sluggard lives constantly in the reality of the curse and it piles up and it thickens and he can't do anything about it. But the path of the upright is a level highway, I-5, no barriers. Why? Because daily she is out there clearing the barriers, getting the field free of thorns, free of thistles and weeds, repairing what needs to be repairing, getting it all done. And little by little, day by day, the upright are out there doing that. Their way is clear. It's free. They can travel. Now, you say, that's not so easy, is it? It's not... It's not so great to be out there every single day working and slaving over that stuff, playing the elaborate game of fetch. How do you stay motivated doing that? Well, this verse says, yeah, it's hard, but it gives you freedom. It opens up a highway for you, and it's level, and it's clear. You can travel down that. You can't travel through a hedge of thorns. You've got to get rid of the hedge first. So this is saying the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. He lives in the curse. The upright are in there redemptively clearing out the weeds. Why are they doing it? To glorify God. And whose power is behind this? I'd like you to look at some verses around this verse in chapter 15. It's very interesting. Look up at verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Look at verse 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Who is this who is standing with and empowering the diligent worker? It's the Lord. He's watching. He's intervening. He's supplying. He's protecting. He doesn't shield us from every pain, every hit, every loss. Far from it. But he contains it. 
He provides for us and protects us through that trial, and He brings us out the other side. So, uh, what is uh, chapter 15, verse 19 saying? The path of the upright is a level highway because the Lord is in there working it redemptively with that diligent person. That's why. Just to close this off, go back to Proverbs chapter 3, something we looked at months ago. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and what will happen. He will make straight your paths. That's a powerful thing. This is saying the Lord is in the work with us and He will make straight the paths that we take. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You may not have five vats, but the one you've got will be full. You may not have 20 barns, but the one you've got will be full because the Lord is there and he's with you in that struggle. What is this about? This is about the gospel. This is about whether we're going to trust God at the heart of what we do every day. Now, part of what we want is what we call fairness. We want God to treat us fairly. We want the economy to treat us fairly. We want to receive what we think we are due. I am here as your pastor to ask, why? Why are we expecting fairness? Have we lost the discernment to understand the world we're living in? The world we're living in is the Genesis 3 world. It is fallen. It is under the curse. That curse will not be lifted till Jesus comes. And we've lost the ability to understand the implications of that. Either, I mean, you can think of this in political terms. Um, From the political left, you'll get to the sort of worker's paradise where the government is supposed to, as a matter of justice, give you your rights and equalize everything that we take out of the economy. Okay? Where is this in Scripture again? Where is that a matter of justice? Where is that in a fallen world? Isn't inequality and the very real trials that come out of that, isn't that bound up with the world we are living in? Of course it is. But we've lost the discernment to see that and understand it. So here's one from the political right. The political right, the workers' paradise, is where the workers aren't taxed, at least not very much. They aren't regulated, and they're free 
to do whatever they want to do, whatever opportunity, they're free to seize it because we're Americans and that's how we roll. Are you kidding me? This is a fallen world. It's fallen in America. It's fallen no matter what the tax rates are. It's fallen no matter how many regulations there are. We are not working to glorify ourselves or our flag. We are working to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, this world is full of thorns. Many of those thorns come from the government, always have. And if we are looking at a, at a situation where we are having trouble being motivated to work because the government just takes it all, do you realize you're looking at what the Bible describes as the reality of a fallen world? Of course it does. And if you were working on some other pretense if you are working under the illusion that somehow what you gain from work belongs to you and is yours and yours alone to build up your life and satisfy your cravings, what this means is you've lost gospel discernment about the state of our world. Our world is fallen. The government is part of that fall. And it means that everything we do meets with thorns and trouble and difficulty, an elaborate game of fetch. What does this throw us back on? Faith. We need to trust God. So let me ask you a couple of questions uh, so that you can evaluate that. First of all, What about your unmet cravings specifically do you resent? If you're carrying around unmet desires and cravings, I need this. And those cravings are not met. You don't have the resources to do it. What about that do you resent? Do you resent specifically that you feel you are owed that or is it the consumption of work that you've done in the past that got consumed in some other way than meeting your cravings what is it about that that you resent what I want you to do is make confession to your high priest this is where my heart is at this is what I want and this is what I do not have and I resent it so this is a question calling for confession. Secondly, what future need will you diligently in faith trust God for? I'm going to do today's work. I'm going to do what is required right now. I'm going to get after it. I know it's not enough. I know it's not going to meet all the, even the needs that I have because that's, that's vast and it really is. 
I know that it's not enough for the future. I understand all of that. But I am going to do today's work because this is what God gave me to do. And in doing today's work, I am going to trust him as my provider. I'm going to fear him. I am going to acknowledge him in all my ways. He will make my path straight. He will lead me to that, that open level highway. And that's how I'm going to travel in my work life. Our work life, if we want to be motivated and driven to work as redeemed people, our work life needs to be motivated by the knowledge that Jesus is building a new kingdom. The new garden is coming. The new work is coming. In his kingdom, work and play will be indistinguishable. We will know a fruitfulness and productivity that we cannot imagine now and we will not be saddled with the selfishness that wants to take and take and take. We will be the people who with with all of our fruitfulness and productivity, creativity, will glorify God directly because he will dwell with us in that new Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. I'm going to check here and see. I have uh, a question here. If you want to walk one up like this, you can do so. If you need to go, uh, this is a good moment to slip out. This is kind of an add-on to the service. We understand that. Um, Okay. First question. It often seems as if the to-do list is always too long to catch up? When and how is it prudent to decide to take time for rest? Very good question. Because there's always a big stack of stuff to do. How do you know when to say, this will keep and I need to rest? How do you make that decision? Um, As we said last week, there is a very important principle in the Ten Commandments about a Sabbath day. We need to have a day that is clear and a a day in which we are devoted to resting, working, uh, resting, worshiping, and relating to our loved ones and family. So relating to God, reconnecting with ourselves in in the things that where we just need to play and reconnecting with our loved ones around us. Um... For me, um, in, which is the, the only perspective I've got on this is that of a minister, uh, the work's never done. The, uh, the, you, you can't close the book and say, okay, finish that church. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's not that way. Uh, okay, saved that soul. Now I have nothing more to do. No, it, it, there's always something more. So what I end up doing is working double time to create a space for that resting time. So I work double time to provide for what is immediately coming up and for what is coming up after the rest. So um, if you're looking at the to-do list and you're saying, okay, I can create a space for a rest right here, 
by doing these things. I can work this side of it up to the rest, and I can work ahead on the other side of the rest. I think we're doing our jobs. Resting, not optional. It's a command. It's part of what God has given us to do. To glorify him, he set the standard by doing it himself. Uh, Very good question there. Um, In heaven, what kinds of work will we do? Farming? Math problems? (laughs) Or... Uh, So, Calkins, I I think (laughs) uh, there will be math in heavens because the old theologians say that mathematics is the mind of God itself. So, where God is, there is math. Loathe though I may be to admit it. Um, What kind of work will we do? I think it's inconceivable to us how vast and creative a place the new Jerusalem is going to be. There's going to be every kind of work. We know there's going to be music. We know there's going to be feasting. So agriculture and, and animals, that's all part of that. Um, but uh, architecture, building, um, who knows what. All these feats of engineering that so amaze us right now, we ain't seen nothing yet. Because what happens when there is no curse and we take the engineering of the physical laws of the world that God has given to us and we put those to work in a brand new way? Uh, There's going to be every kind of work uh, in heaven. And um, it's a very important thing that we know this. Uh, Check this out in uh, Revelation 21, the description of the new Jerusalem. Uh, you'll see the kings of the nations bringing their wealth and their glory into Jerusalem. Where'd they get the wealth and the glory? An economy, that's where they work. And that work is, is fruitful. Last question. Interesting that Jesus wore a crown of thorns and he became the curse for us. Symbolic. I think it is symbolic. It's not just the pain of wearing that crown of thorns. It's the thorns themselves. This is what we're up against. And it is all defeated in Jesus Christ and by his power and his resurrection. So in his name and in his glory and by his grace, let us go and worship him in our work and offer up to him the work of our hands so that he can build his kingdom through us.